This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and a Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today we're talking about regulatory responses to climate change. And this came up, Richard, because the acting chair of the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, put out a request for public comments on new climate change disclosure rules. Now, to give some context, the goal of the existing requirements created back in 2010 is to provide investors with information about climate change-related risks that a business might face. And that seems somewhat reasonable to me. So, Richard, how onerous are the rules right now? And what has changed that would require new rules to be written? Well, I think the answer is the current rules are perfectly sensible. And the key reason is if you're trying to figure out what it is that investors want, uh, they want current information, which is going to tell them whether or not there's some kind of a shock uh, with respect to the system that will influence price. The term material is designed to rule out at the very least every little chit-chat piece of information that comes across uh, that might affect the stock by 0.01%. If you start having disclosure requirements with things like that, serious risk will simply be lost. So you're trying to get yourself some major risk. Well, then the question is, what kinds of risks that are climate-related are, in fact, going to qualify for that? And the answer is, if you know that there's a typhoon or a hurricane coming at one of your plants, you probably would have to disclose that. But since it's not a systematic risk and you may have only 24 hours before it happens, it's just not going to take place. And so you then try to figure out, was there something else? Now, if you go back to the a climate dispute that is taking place in New York. Uh, one of the issues that was claimed by the city is that when you're looking at the uh, potential increase in height uh, with respect to the war sea level rise, it's going to be large enough so that we're going to have to pay very, very large amounts by 2050 in order to cover these losses. At the same time, it turns out that there were a bunch of bond offerings that were out there, and virtually none of these bond offerings had any reference whatsoever to climate change. And then if you started to look further and seeing whether or not prices of various kinds of real estate uh, seemed to reflect an increased risk in the out years, you couldn't find anything of that sort either. Uh, so what's really happening is the way in which businesses look at these kinds of things is they ask whether or not there's something within a five, maybe a 10-year umbrella time uh, that might move prices. If not, what they do is they basically say, we don't see anything now. And then as you get closer to some apoptic event or some terrible event, what you do is you say, okay, we're going to have to revise this. So basically, uh, uh, the only time that you had this conflict was when the city's experts said that there were all sorts of changes that were going to happen for which there was no market evidence. So to give you another illustration, uh, there was many cases in which the issue is whether or not after COVID, the companies would have to change the fair market value that they attach to their oil reserves, Exxon and other companies. And, you know, this is a perfectly sensible request because now you're dealing with a one-year time window. And the issue is going to be what's going to happen to transportation in the next 12 months if it turns out that COVID is going to shut down the transportation grid, close down the airlines, and so forth. And what happens is in response to that kind of 
of information, a company like Exxon will, in fact, downplay or uh, downgrade the value of its uh, reserves because, at least under short-term estimates, they're not going to be increased as much as they want. So the other system seems to work fine, and investors get what they need to know. And it's always should be remembered that the sources of information that you have with respect to some kind of offering or some kind of company are not exclusively from the company itself. There are all sorts of other ways that people can look at it. So when you're talking about something which is a generic risk, and somebody thinks by consulting various experts that the climate risk is greater than uh, Exxon thinks it is, uh, they can decide to sell short under that kind of situation to reflect what they regard to be the decline in value. And it would be a terrible mistake in the securities business when you're talking with generic evidence about climate change to assume that this kind of stuff is not going to be empiric. Well, then you start looking at what she's asking, that is uh, Commissioner Levy, and it turns out that this is really quite amazing. I'm just going to read to you uh, two of the statements she wants. How can the commission best regulate, monitor, review, and guide climate change disclosure in order to provide more consistent, comparable, and reliable information for investors while also providing greater clarity to a registrant as to what's expected of them? And the answer is, what are you supposed to add? And then the next question is, what information related to climate risk can be quantified and measured? Well, it turns out virtually everything and nothing is going to be subject to that. And so as far as I can see, there is actually no relevance whatsoever to be a relationship rather between price movements on the one hand, when you look at this sort of a regulation and the kinds of information that you're going to disclose. And so the question that you then have to ask is, well, why do you want to do this? And I think that uh, that's something which you don't see a very good response in the public request that the commissioner made. Well, let's talk about uh, the arguments for for why to do this. Uh, there's a standard justification, I think, to disclose what's called material non-public information. Uh, this is knowledge that firms might have about their own businesses that should be revealed so that nobody uh, – commits insider trading so that business insiders don't have an unfair advantage on other investors or competitors. Uh, the trend is, you know, that we should just disclose this information because what's the harm? In fact, we're, we're preventing harm um, for, by mandating more information be, be put out there for investors. What's wrong with that line of thinking? Well, let's just start with a very simple situation. Suppose some of the information that you have is proprietary trade secrets about the particular plans that you're going to engage in with respect to expansion of your market, some of which may be influenced by what you think to be the future price of energy, changing for a variety of reasons. You start to disclose all of this particular information. It's not just going to go to consumers who can decide whether they do or do not like your stocks. It's also going to go to your competitors who can then turn that information again. Against you. So uh, whereas if you kept the trade secret and kept it effectively, you have a kind of a short-term monopoly, which gives you additional profits. If you have to disclose it, you dissipate that by sharing it with lots of other people. And so generally speaking, what companies do is they're very chary about making certain kinds of disclosures. And under the current law, I think the way in which the thing sort of plays out, if you don't trade and you don't disclose, uh, then you're going to be okay. Uh, but at least in these circumstances, it doesn't seem like that's what they're about. So one of the things you have to ask is whether or not you're going to have either direct enforcement by the 
SEC or allow private rights of action, such that if you don't disclose on anything in these broad parameters, somebody can sue you uh, for breach of your fiduciary duties for insider trading or something of the sort. So at that point, it becomes an extraordinarily broad kind of mandate. And so the way in which I interpret this, and I did so in my column, is to say, you're not giving this information to investors to figure out whether or not it's a good deal or not. You're giving this information to dissident shareholders, often very small in number, and so that they could use it to pulverize the company and its board of directors. Remember, there was this recent incident with respect to who would become the new directors on ExxonMobil and the activists managed to get several seats on the board backed by some large corporations um, and mainly did it on the grounds that they want this sort of climate control kind of issues. If you make this an issue um, and put it on the exchange, then when it comes to the next board election, anybody who has that activist stance is going to say, look, we really have to do what the SEC wants us to do. You should move the board in our direction. And I think that that's part of what's at stake here. Uh, you want to put this thing out there, one, in order to see if you can get more people of like mind of the Biden administration on there, and two, give them the tools by which they can beat up the company, which will in fact move them away from fossil fuels. Now, one of the things that's so ironic about this is you do not see in this a following kind of statement. Well, what is it about fossil fuels which will retard the risk associated with global warming? That is, everything that is assumed is that they're all bad, that the renewables are all good, and one wonders whether or not the SEC would have the slightest interest in a statement which says, well, if it turns out that you move more rapidly to natural gas and remove some dirty coal plants, you can clean up the environment more than you could if you make a prolonged and delayed investment in wind and solar. I think that's a perfectly legitimate statement. It's not at all clear that the SEC in its current mindset uh, would be interested in having that. Remember, it's a democratically controlled institution today, but I think it's more than that. My guess is if you actually look down and figure out who are the staffers and the attorneys and the economists who run the SEC and the environmental experts, you would find that virtually all of them as part of a pure a permanent bureaucracy, are somewhere on the less percentage. So it would be nice to ask the SEC to disclose uh, what percentage of its full-time staff is Republican, what percentage is Democratic, what don't declare, who are independent and the like. I think it's a pretty skewed kind of sample, at least based upon my casual interactions with the way in which the SEC has run over the past years. You bring up a related point in your column, uh, and that's one of the motivations for changing these uh, disclosure requirements, namely that it bolsters the case that climate change is real and imminent, therefore boosting the case for more direct regulation on this issue. Are you talking about direct regulation um, from the SEC or part of a larger strategy to invite regulation by Congress or others? Well, I, I don't think the SEC has too much by way of direct powers to regulate, given that it's generally a disclosure regime. Uh, but if you start mandating more and more disclosures and make it more and more painful for people not to disclose, it is going to have an indirect effect on behavior. Uh, but certainly, if the information comes out, there is the EPA and all sorts of other agencies, and they can rely upon this information to say, look, I know we have direct control of it, and we really ought to take uh, charge of the situation. And, and what I've always found situations since uh, so difficult here, since I'm, I'm a moderate climate skeptic, that is, I don't take everything on faith that the um, EA, EPA or any other agency says, and it seems to me that a lot of this stuff on climate change is extraordinarily complex, and that there's some highly intelligent people on the other side of the debate, is I just say it doesn't seem to fit. So one of the illustrations I gave in the column, because it's of great relevance, is, you know, what is the uh, basically the sea level rise in a place like Lake Michigan? 
Uh, you know, I, I'm interested in this in part because of the Obama uh, Foundation case that I'm working on, where uh, I think they're being rather rash and foolish to build, if they get away with this, very close to the West Lagoon off of Lake Michigan, because the waters in that area have risen in last year's about four or five feet. But if you look at this, this is nothing new. It's always been cyclical patterns up and down. And so I can recall as far back in 1987, there were people selling out because they thought they would be inundated. Uh, then you wait about five or six years, and all of a sudden, you literally can watch the, 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 the lake recede uh, instead of going up. And now you've got very long beaches. You actually at one point got an extra dune. Then it starts to come back in again. The cycles are very large, and I put in the column a, a graphic which showed what they were. And here's the simple challenge. Uh, the situation with respect to carbon dioxide is monotonic. That means it's always increasing by a certain definite amount. It's a slow increase, but it's an invariable increase. How do you use the same phenomenon to explain that something both goes up and down? There's no statistical way to do it. Uh, you can't simply say it's a delayed reaction because you still have to explain why on a delayed basis it goes down as well as up under these circumstances. You can't say, well, we'll bury the amplitude because these things are still going up and down. And so what's clearly at work is some other X factor, which we may or may not be able to identify. I've heard it said that one of the problems that you get in Lake Michigan is there's often a backflow of water coming out of Lake Superior. And another one of the puzzles is if you actually look at the water level levels in five of the Great Lakes, they don't all follow the same pattern. Some of them, like Lake Michigan, turn out to be more volatile than others of the kinds of lake. Uh, what this suggests to you time and time again is that you really are putting too many eggs in the one climate change basket associated with carbon dioxide. You're not worrying about El Nino. You're not worried about volcanic activities. You're not worried about sunsets. You're not worried about trade winds. Who knows what else what you have to be worried about? That's one of the reasons why the problem is so difficult. If you simply say, oh, we'd better look at carbon dioxide and treat that as the lever, it's a residual. On everything else, where is it? It doesn't matter. Water vapor is much more important to, as it were, greenhouse gases than is uh, a carbon dioxide. We know it's more powerful. I, I can give you a very detailed scientific proof. If you look outside, nobody's going to say it's a gray day because of carbon dioxide. But if you've got a lot of cloud cover, i.e. water vapor up there, it can change the temperatures instantaneously on the surface by as much as 10 to 20 degrees in a matter of seconds a minute. Well, you've got to be able to figure this out. So what's happening is uh, they are asking these questions, not in the spirit of, hey, try to tell us what's going on here so we can figure out what's happened. They're asking in the spirit, we know. Uh, that all of this stuff about climate change is driven by and then carbon dioxide and maybe one or two things other. And so you have to do is to tell us what you're going to do in order to stop that. And uh, it seems to me that, that no government agency in disclosure uh, should suppress various kinds of dissent. Um, and so it turns out the SEC is being like Twitter or other sites, which won't publish any blog, uh, which is critical in many ways of the various theories of, of climate change. I think that this is all a mistake. I think the SEC is way stepping out over its pay. And I think that the Biden administration has really put itself into a terrible bind um, by simply shutting everything down that it could possibly get its hands on, on the complete and supreme confidence that they have, uh, that they're right with respect to everything associated with climate. If you remember what happened when the colonial pipeline failed because of ransom and the massive shortages with respect to fossil fuels, not replaceable by anything else, 
uh, you would realize that, you know, in many ways, this is really reckless. So here's another disclosure for you. We have now disclosed that we are going to take very serious actions to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide by shutting down large capacities of our fossil fuels. We predict that the entire economy will fall into chaos if we do that. I mean, is that going to be a permissible exchange? And you can see they're not interested in disclosure for disclosure's sake. They're interested in disclosure for advancing a substantive agenda. And that is not what the SEC rules, as formulated in the 1930s, is about. And it's not just the SEC. And maybe we'll, we'll end with this question because, you know, our Hoover colleague, John Cochran, has written and testified about the Federal Reserve uh, investigating the implications of climate change for financial markets. Uh, one of the Fed governors is quoted as saying that climate change impacts all aspects of the Federal Reserve's mission. Uh, this is a conversation we're having about the appropriate way to address important problems. I, can you give us a framework for thinking about what administrative or regulatory agencies should be involved here? Who should be actually handling these these questions? Well, it certainly should not be the, the federal commission. They're trying to figure out what interest rates are and so forth. Um, they're supposed to have some capacity to deal with jobs. I've always opposed dual missions for the Federal Reserve because if jobs problems say, oh, you better expend more money, and if interest rates says you ought to go in the opposite direction, why do you want to use a composite interest? I've always taken the view that labor relations are best directed and understood as labor relations, so you figure out what the National Labor Relations Board is going to do, contracts at will, minimum wage, family leave stuff, and do that through other agencies, and that you leave the Fed as a sure monetary plan. And what that particular point, what they're supposed to do is to find out how you ensure price stability, and you can do that by trying to set interest rates at a certain target level and let the quantity of money vary, or you can say we're going to keep the quantity of money relatively constant and then have the interest rates vary, and and somebody like John Taylor knows so much more about this than I do that uh, you can see the way that debate goes. But they have absolutely nothing sensible to say, uh, because there's no way in which you can make a prediction about climate change and the increased use of phosphates, whatever it is that you want to talk about, uh, that will tell you what you're supposed to do on the monetary level. So they should butt out if you can't do something sensible with the kind of information you don't. The other point that John made and that I make too and that everybody makes is that when you're starting to talk about projection, there is this delusion that the current generation is somehow privileged and that we should be making the choices for the next 100 years. Uh, Well, somebody 10 years from now is going to take exactly that same position. And the 10 years after that, there is no one who essentially has the power to bind the future. So what you do is you start to think of the world in five-year chunks. And what this means is you say, look, I don't know that exactly everything is going to be, uh, but I would like to keep these markets relatively stable, uh, say up to the year 2025 or 2028. This is what I'm going to do in order to achieve that. And then after that, it's going to be the guys who are in charge five or eight years from now who are going to have to take this thing. And then the cycle will start to repeat itself. So justice between the generations that I think be Prosper, uh, prosper, I'm looking to a very nice expression by John Rawls, one of the few things on which I agree with him. He says the job of the present generation is not to make the world safe for all time. It's to basically hand it on to the next generation in as good or better a shape than it found it. 
And now, what counts as a generation in terms of year periods is, of course, very, very difficult and when you start. But the basic impulse is that when you have identified these periods, uh, your job is to conserve in the interim. It is not to try and make Pollyannish predictions about the way in which everything will run. So John, in his usual way, says, look, said, I'm trying to figure out where the financial markets went down. It wasn't because the Fed decided to be loose when uh, people invested in radio in, in 1922. It has more to do with the Community Relations Act and the interest rate failures in 2006, leading to the crisis of 2008. And this is extremely true. When you're looking backwards, the old legal maxim, look only at proximate cause, means you'll look at things that are close at hand first, and you don't worry about things that remotely away because they're always going to be overwhelmed. So do you want to understand what the effects of uh, various policies are on race relationships and fertility rates? You don't look at the Civil War. What you do is you look at things that start more recently about minimum wage and job creation and all the rest of that stuff. And that's exactly the same thing here. And so what the SEC does, it has exactly the wrong time frame. It's inducing people to give all sorts of wasted full information about very remote events. And what it does, it's going to give them less time to deal with the things that they can do, which is how they're dealing with the four most important things on their plate today. Uh, so it's not only that you're putting the wrong things on the table, you're making it likely that the information that you could supply about more direct effects is going to be inferior to what it could have been if they kept the old policy in place. That'll do it for this episode of The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, on defining ideas at hoover.org every week. If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you tune in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.